Amen. Don't forget about neighborhood evangelism. I launched that service or that vision a few weeks ago, and we're going to be loving our neighbors in all of our subdivisions. How many of you live in a subdivision? Just raise your hand. Most of you do. If you don't live in a subdivision, join up with one of the subdivisions, and we're going to just see what God does as we love our neighbors to Jesus. And so all of us, if we're, we're identified your neighborhood, we're going to map that out. And then uh, December the 9th, we're going to be meeting with all the leaders. We'll have leaders in your neighborhood who are going to be meeting with you. As we go out and invite them, we got two events coming up in December. On December the 16th, our choir Christmas special. And then on December 24th, we'll have our Christmas Eve service. We'll have flyers for you next Sunday to pass out in your neighborhood. And the purpose of that is just to get to know your neighbors. And so we're trying to meet our neighbors, trying to get to know our neighbors, and eventually we hope we can win them to Christ. There's a lot of people in your neighborhood and in my neighborhood who are unchurched. And so we want them in church, we want them in Christ, and we want to share Christ with them. So neighborhood evangelism, love your neighbor. And so I just pray you'll do that. We need to get to know our neighbors. Now after yesterday, you may be mad at your neighbor, right? You may be even mad at your pastor. I don't know. But anyway, uh, Patsy and I are doing fine. We don't need counseling. All right. So uh, Patsy's doing great. She's doing fine. And I did have pizza last night. All right. But anyway, uh, it was a good game. And by the way, let me remind you, it's just a game. Just a game, isn't it? Just a game. Just keep saying that. It's just a game. It's just a game. And it is. But I'm glad I'm in the Lord's house celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad that my wife and I know the Lord. We have a healthy marriage. We have great children and grandchildren. God has richly blessed our life. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because, and that's what matters in life. That's the priority of life. And so I hope you understand that. Today I'm back in Revelation. We're preaching through the book of Revelation. We're halfway after today. We'll be halfway. There's 22 chapters in Revelation, and today we're in chapter 11. So open your Bible, the book of Revelations, chapter 11. I, I took a break from that. I taught uh, Love Your Neighbor, Neighborhood Evangelism. We talked about Thanksgiving last week and our stewardship message. We only had one message. See, it's winding down, Brother Brad. It only had one message on stewardship. I used to do the whole month. And so some of you are catching it, but all of you haven't. So I hope you'll catch it. You can't outgive God, right? God owns it all anyway. So we can't outgive him. So I'm grateful to this church. By the way, we had over $100,000 in our march to the chest, our faith commitment to our missionaries, right at $100,000, about halfway to our goal. But anyway, we can do a lot of things for our missionaries on $100,000. Some of you pledged that, some of you already given. So I just want to say how grateful I am to this church for your generosity and your support of our missions endeavors. God is richly blessing us here at Lindsay Lane because we're involved not only here in our Jerusalem, but in our Judea, in our state, in our Samaria, our nation, and around the world. And you're supporting that with your finances. So thank you so much for investing in what God's doing in and through you. Did you catch that? In and through you. You are the church. When I say Lindsay Lane, I say you. You're invested in what God's doing in me and you in the life of our missionaries around the world. So thank you, church. That's just the way it works. We support them. By the way, we live in America, right? The greatest nation upon earth, the richest nation on earth that we have. And uh, so God's blessed us so we can give. All right. Now, in Revelation chapter 11. Now, in chapter 10 of Revelation, 
In almost all of chapter 11, there's an interlude there between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, the trumpet judgments. Remember, we went through the seven seal judgment, and now we're in the trumpet judgment. So today, we're going to come to number seven, the seventh trumpet judgment. And so chapter 10 and chapter 11 is kind of an interlude in between those. So last week, in, I mean, last time in chapter 10, we, we talked about John. John was given a little scroll. You remember that? A scroll of prophecy. And, to, and uh, God said, John, I want you to eat that scroll. And John ate the word of God and put it in his heart. So John's no longer seeing all of this vision, per se. He's involved in it. So in chapter 10, he got involved. He ate the scroll, and he he began to prophesy, if you will, the vision that God gave him. And now, in chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, rather, is on another assignment. This time, he's told to measure the temple of God. And so God's speaking to John. John's in the vision. John's seeing into the future. John's seeing into heaven. He's seeing the things that are to come, as we've talked about. So let's look at this. Number one, we're going to talk about the temple. Now, we don't have an outline today because of the holidays. You've got to listen carefully, and you've got to write them down. So the first thing I want to talk to you about is the temple. In verses 1 and 2, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and we're going to talk about the temple. Now, let me read verses 1 and 2. Then I, that would be John... Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God. And also measure the altar and all of those who worship there. So how do you do that? So we'll talk about that. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months or three and a half years. Remember, we're in the tribulation period, the seven year, the 70th week of Daniel. We're in the seven year tribulation period. He said, so the Gentiles are going to trample underfoot the holy city. Now, as you look at the temple, the setting here is Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the key. And by the way, I'm going there in May. If you want to go, let me know. You can still sign up. We're going to Jerusalem, going to Israel, taking a group in May the 13th through the 22nd. So if you can uh, want to go to that, let us know. Let Miss Kim know. But the setting is Jerusalem, and the time is the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, Israel has always tried to ha- worship God. They had the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then they had the temples in Jerusalem that they worshiped God. And so during this tribulation period, the temple is going to be restored under the protection of the Antichrist. Now, the true character in the first three and a half years of the Antichrist has not really been revealed. Remember, it's going to be talking about world peace and all of that in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. So, this temple is being restored. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 36, maybe you want to write this down and go back and look at the scriptures that I give you. I want you to write them down so you can do your own study. But in Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 24, Ezekiel's prophesying of the last days... God's going to bring all the Jews back to Israel. He's going to bring them back, and they're going to be worshiping in the, uh, in the temple. He's going, the Bible says he's going to bring them back from the four corners of the world. You know, the Jews have been scattered. The Jews have been under persecution almost forever. They've been under persecution. So they scattered all over the four corners of the world. But in the last days, Ezekiel said, God's going to bring them all back 
There's going to be a gathering of the Jews back at Israel because God's got a plan. We talked about this in the millennial kingdom especially. God's got a plan for the Israel, for the Jews. Now, Ezekiel said he's bringing them all back, and they're going to be worshiping at the temple there in Jerusalem. So this is very significant. Now, also, if you remember, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, the first half of the 70th week of Daniel, that would be the seven-year tribulation period, Israel makes a treaty with the Antichrist. And so, in Daniel, you read that, Daniel 9, 27. Israel makes a covenant, if you will. They make a covenant with the Antichrist. And so, everybody's going to think the Antichrist is just the one. He's the, he's the ruler of the world. He's the savior of the world in that first three and a half years. Now, remember, the church has been raptured up into heaven, but this is one's left on earth. All right? Now, after 42 months... That's three and a half years. After 42 months, the Antichrist's true character is going to be revealed. After the first three and a half years of tribulation period, in the last three and a half years, his character is really going to be revealed. It's who he is. He is the Antichrist. He's against God. He's against Christ. And in the last three and a half, the great tribulation period, his character is really going to come out. He's going to be revealed for the dragon and the beast and the devil that he really, really is. Now, look in verse number 1. John is told to measure the temple, the altar, and all the people. Now, what does that mean? That measurement is symbolic. God's taking care of Israel, especially Mount Zion, especially Jerusalem. So God tells John in the, in the, uh, in the end times, he said, I want you to measure the city. Now, He's not the only one that ever measured the city. So that's, that God is saying, Israel belongs to me, Jerusalem belongs to me. And he's kind of saying, I'm taking ownership of that. I want you to go ahead. I've got a plan for Israel. got a plan for the new Jerusalem. Remember, Revelations 21, we'll get to that. The new Jerusalem. So I want you to measure the city and the altar and the people. It's like God saying, I'm claiming ownership of my city. And so the background for that, if you want to do some background research on the vision, not only did John have a vision, but also Ezekiel and Zechariah had the same vision of the city of Jerusalem and the measurements of that. For instance, you may want to write this down in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3. If you'll read Ezekiel chapter 40 to, verse, to chapter 43, he gives a whole litany, if you will, of the measurement of, of the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. Now, I want to give you this verse. Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 3. It's on the screen. There was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze. He had a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand, and he stood in the gateway. Like John was told to do years before that in a vision, Ezekiel was told to measure the city as well. And so he measures the temple even and gets a whole, whole uh, dimensions, if you will, of that city in Ezekiel. Zechariah, another prophet of God, was also given a vision of the future, futuristic that's going to happen in the temple. Listen to this passage of Scripture, Zechariah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what God told Zechariah. Then I raised my eyes and I looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. There it is again. This rod, this measuring line. So I said to him, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem. To see what is the width and what is the length. 
So not only John was told to measure the temple, also Zechariah and also Ezekiel as well was told to measure the temple. Now God's taking ownership of that. It's his, it's his final Jerusalem's going to come down. It's going to be the millennial kingdom of God. And so we'll talk about that later on. Now, to, just to really help you with this, I want you to look at Revelations chapter 21. Turn over to Revelation. I'm talking fast because i got a lot of ground to plow, all right? Revelation chapter 21, and look in verse number 15. Now, by the way, this is, we'll get to this eventually. This is the new Jerusalem in the end times, if you will, the millennial kingdom. The thousand-year reign of Jesus himself. Now, he talks about this. Look in verse 15, chapter 21. And he taught with me and a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. Here again, even in the last days, God has Jerusalem in his heart, and he's going to measure that great city. He has a plan for uh, Jerusalem. Now look in verse number 2. So what's significant? Verse number 2. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. It's been given to the Gentiles. If you remember, even in Herod's day, even in the, in the, uh, even in the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, they had a temple there, and in Jesus' day as well, they had an outside court for the Gentiles. The Gentiles could not go in and worship with the Jews. But they had a court outside the temple, which was dedicated, if you will, to the Gentiles. And so he's alluding to that in chapter, I mean, in verse number 2. Now, if you think about that, it, it was, uh, for the significant meaning of that would be the prophecy in Revelation, in the last three and a half years, remember, we're in the seven-year period, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, all through Israel, Israel's history, Jerusalem has been under siege. Now, in the last days, I don't know how this is going to play out, but in the battle of Armageddon even, it's going to all come against Israel. And that's why Israel is so important that we pray for Israel. Because all these armies are going to come against Israel. And they're even in Jerusalem where the temple is. Now the temple has been under siege and been destroyed many times. In uh, 586 B.C., uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, king of Babylon, they destroyed the temple. And it was rebuilt. And then again in A.D. 70, in Jesus' day, the temple, or after Jesus was died and resurrected, in A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed by Titus, who was the king of Assyria. And so the Assyrians destroyed the temple. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, you go to the Wailing Wall, which is right there in Jerusalem. On the bottom part of that are some of the same rocks, or the bricks there, whatever you want to call those, that were there in A.D. 70. Uh, in Jesus' day, right after Jesus was crucified. And so when the Assyrians came in and destroyed Jerusalem... But some of those foundational rocks are still there. Now, I want to allude to that because I want you to understand that. The Antichrist has broken his agreement with Israel after the first three and a half years. He's broken that agreement. And now he's in siege of that temple himself. Now, why is that? Why would the Antichrist want the temple of Jerusalem? Because he wants to set himself in that temple as God. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I want you to see this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm spending a little time on this because I want you to get the background of what's happening, what's going to happen with Jerusalem, especially uh, the temple area. 
And so the temple area has been so sacred all through the years. But it's always been under siege. It's always been under attack. And it will be again. But I want you to watch this. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look in verse 3 and 4. Paul writes this. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away of the apostasy comes first. And the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. That would be the Antichrist. Now look in verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. Now watch this. So that he sets as God in the temple of God. Showing himself to be as God. And so that's what's going to happen in the end times. During this millennial reign. I mean in this uh, tribulation period. Of the first three and a half years. Everybody's going to worship him. But he's going to reveal his true character. And then he's going to set himself up in the temple area. The last great tribulation. The last three and a half years. To be as God. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next chapters coming, how God's going to deal with this dragon, this, the, the, the devil himself and the Antichrist and the false prophet. So we'll be looking at those later on. Now I want you to look in Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, and I want you to see what Jesus said about this. Look in Luke chapter 21 in your Bibles or your iPads, iPhones. Whatever. Look at it. Luke 21. And look in verse 20 just for the start. Look in verse 20. 21, 20 of Luke. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, then you know desolation, and that's talking about in the, the seven-year desolation, if you will, the seven-week that Daniel talks about. Now, look in verse 24. Luke 21, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. And they will fall by, they will fall by the edge of the sword. Speaking about the Jews here. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all nations. They were led captive in Babylonian and led captive into Syria. And watch what he says. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. To understand this, you have to realize God has a timetable. God's got all this planned out. We don't know what it is. We don't understand it. But God's got it all timed out. So the Gentiles have a period. The Antichrist has a period of reign. God allows the Antichrist to reign. He's in control. He's in control of all of us. And so the Gentiles have been trampling underfoot Jerusalem for years and years. And then it mentioned in our text, in in verse number 2 of 11 of Revelation, that in the last three and a half years, the Gentiles are going to trample Jerusalem underfoot for 42 months, which is three and a half years. And then God is going to greatly intervene. So the time of the Gentiles is the time that God's allowed them to, and He's going to close it out. By the way, at the end of the tribulation, to the end of the seven year reign, God's going to close it out and the times of the Gentiles will cease during when Jesus Christ comes again. Right? And so God's going to put a finality, if you will, in the judgment 
of the world. And so all of that time's coming. And so God has it all set out. Now, all right, with that said, turn back to our text in Revelations chapter 11. Let's look at these two witnesses, okay? That's a lot in those two verses, isn't it? But I'm telling you, you've got to really do a study of that to really understand all about the time of the Gentiles and how that's being fulfilled in God's great plan. So let's look at the two witnesses very hurriedly. Look in verse 3 through 6 at the two witnesses. And I will give power, this is God speaking, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for a thousand and two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. Now how long is one thousand two hundred and sixty days? How long is that church? Three and a half years. So what is God doing here? So in the, in the first half there of the three and a half years, God's going to send his two witnesses. Now remember, he had the 144,000 Jews as witnesses as well, but these are his two personal witnesses. And so God said, I'm going to send them, and they're going to prophesy, and they're going to preach for three and a half years to those who remain on earth during the tribulation period. And so look in verse number, number uh, four. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God, standing before the, the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. That's judgment, by the way. Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must kill, be killed in this manner. These have power, these two witnesses, they have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all kind of plagues as often as they desire. So these two witnesses of God are great men of God, and they have great power from God. And so for three and a half years, they're prophesying and they're preaching the Word of God. Now the question is, who are... These two witnesses. Now, one thing we know, they're prophets. Verse 3, verse 6. They're prophets. In other words, they have a prophetic ministry. God's given them a prophetic ministry to prophesy and to preach, if you will, for three and a half years. There's many speculations by theologians who are always trying to figure out who these two witnesses are. Some have said they represent the New and the Old Testament. That these two witnesses are the Old and the Old and the New Testament. A lot of people, some theologians believe that it's Elijah and Enoch. And the reason they believe it's Elijah and Enoch, because neither one of them had a physical death while they were on earth. Both of them were caught up into heaven. Neither one of them died like most people die. And so a lot of people say, well, it must be Elijah and it must be Enoch. And then there's a lot of people, which I believe as well, that it's Elijah and Moses. That is the two prophets that God greatly used in the Old Testament, Elijah the prophet and Moses the prophet. Now, why would we, why would we uh, say that those are the two, which I believe? I believe there's some background to back that up, and very quickly I'll give you that. And he mentions the lampstands and the olive trees in, in, uh, in chapter 4, I mean verse number 4. If you'll read that, he talks about the two lampstands and the two olive trees. Now, Zechariah prophesies that in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. 
See, all of the New Testament really speaks to the Old Testament. And things that happen in the Old Testament are brought to light in the New Testament. So what's the significance of the lampstands and olive trees? It's just this. What does the lampstand do? It gives off light. The lampstand gives light. So these two witnesses are preaching the light or the truth of the gospel. And said, the olive trees represents the oil, which is the Holy Spirit of God. When you see oil in the Bible, it's representative of the Holy Spirit of God. And so the oil comes from where? The olive oil comes from the trees into the lamp so the lamp can shine their light. And so all of this is significant. All of this is symbolic, by the way. A lot of revelation is symbolic. So the olive trees and the lampstand are symbols, symbols of these two prophets, what they're doing. Now... Let me say this. I believe Elijah is one of the prophets. If you'll turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. The last book in the Old Testament. Go to Matthew and then turn left and you'll come to Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So look in Malachi, if you will. Very quickly, I want you to see this. Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, I want you to look in verses four, uh, 5 and 6. Verse 5 and 6, Malachi, this is the Old Testament, prophesied in the New Testament, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That would be the tribulation. And so the, what's the great tribulation? The last three and a half years. So I'm going to send you Elijah before... The last three and a half years. So we talked about the 42 months of 1,250 days are the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Now watch this, verse 5. I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And the hearts of the children to the fathers. Lest I come and strike earth with a curse. Now, this is also, in the New Testament, it's also symbolic of John the Baptist. Remember, a lot of people thought John the Baptist was the prophet Elijah. So it's symbolic in that Elijah was a forerunner of Christ. He's coming, preparing the way. Elijah did that. So John the Baptist had a lot of characteristics, if you will, of Elijah. But here in our text, the two witnesses, one of those, I believe with all of that, it's very plain to me that it was Elijah. Now, there's other things. Elijah prepared the way. He never experienced death. Uh, By the way, it said in verse number 6, this prophet has the power to shut up heaven where there'll be no rain. By the way, you remember? Elijah shut up heaven on Mount Carmel where it didn't rain for years. And so he had the power to do that. He's also pronounced judgment uh, at Mount Carmel. He pronounced judgment. In verse 5 said judgment comes out of their mouth. And so he pronounced judgment there on the prophets of Baal in Mount Carmel. And also he's one of the two prophets that the three disciples saw with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember who those two, two prophets were? Elijah and Moses. They got the prophets... Uh, Peter, James, and John, they got to see those two prophets in the afterlife. And so they saw them, and Jesus let them look into heaven, and they saw Elijah and Moses. Now, Moses also was one of the two prophets who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. He also pronounced judgment on on Egypt. Remember that? The The ten plagues, Moses was used to pronounce judgment. Fire came out of his mouth, if you will. The judgments of God upon upon Egypt. And also, he was a prophet who God used, in verse number 6, 
to turn the water into blood. It says it right there in verse number 6 of our text. Remember? One of them had the power to, where the rain wouldn't fall. And the other had the power to turn waters into blood. Moses did that in Egypt. So I really believe these two prophets are Elijah and Moses. But the main thing is, uh, what is their purpose? What were they doing? For three and a half years, they preached. They were invincible. They were bold in their preaching. They were judgment, bringing the judgment of God upon the people. And they pronounced it from their mouth, and they did great miracles, if you will, in those three and a half years. I mean, they were great preachers of God. And, and by the way, no, no one came up to them and said, Man, that was a fiery sermon this morning, Pastor. <laughs> Nobody did that. But these two men, these two witnesses were preaching the gospel, if you will, or preaching the judgment of God for three and a half years. And then what happened to them? Well, let's, let's look at our text. The two witnesses are martyred. Watch this, verse 7, this is interesting. When were they martyred? Watch this, when they finished their testimony. When God was through, three and a half years, I want you all to go down there, I'm going to raise you up, two prophets, but when you're through, I'm going to let them kill you. See, God's got everything planned. When they finished their testimony. That's when they were killed, martyred, if you will. Watch this. Watch verse 7. When they finished their testimony, the beast, and by the way, we're going to talk about this beast in chapter 13 of Revelation. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, these two witnesses, and overcome them and kill them. And the dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where... Also, our Lord was crucified. Where was that? Jerusalem, the great city. Then those, then those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations all over the world will see their dead bodies three and a half days. They're going to lie in the street. They're going to let them lay there for three and a half days. Everybody in the world is going to see them. And now, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. Now, by the way, these are all those lost that's left behind in the tribulation period, and they will make merry and send gifts to one another. A satanic Christmas, you could call that. They're going to send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwelt on the earth. How did they torment them? Preaching judgment. And by the way, there's people, your neighbors, my neighbors, your friends, my friends, your family, my friends, they don't want to hear the Word of God. And I'm telling you, they don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. Don't hear nothing to do with God. Don't want to hear you talk about Jesus. And that's the way it was in the tribulation period when these two prophets were preaching, man. They were, they were, to they were bold. They were invincible. And they were tormenting the people with a fire of judgment. Coming out of their mouths. Now, these they were martyred when their, when their testimony was finished. God's obedient servants are immortal until their work is done. You know what that reminded me of? When I read this and studied it, it reminded me of Jesus. You know what Jesus said? Hey guys, my hour has come. It is finished. Done. Finished. Complete. And then what did they do to him? Crucified him. 
crucify the Son of God. But God allowed it because God had a purpose and a plan for Christ on the cross. He's got a plan for these two witnesses as well. So we start thinking, well, how would God allow that? Why would He allow that? Hang on, hang on. How would God allow my loved one to go through this? Hang on. I wish they were healed. They will be. They will be if they're Christians. Just hang on. Hang on. I'm telling y'all, God's got all this under control. Everything. Under His hand. And when you read this and you try to figure it out, you just say, well, God's in control, and He is. So these two witnesses had a purpose. They killed them. Let them lay there for three and a half days in the street and made party over them. What a scene. And the beast, the Antichrist has come on the part, uh, the, the beast has uh, come on the scene now from the bottomless pit. And we'll talk about that in chapter 13. But what a three and a half days they lay there, they rejoiced over them. You say, well, how did everybody in the world see them? Technology. Can you imagine what the technology, CNN probably broadcast it. And everybody over in this country, in this place, in this place, all around the world, they'll see it. Because of the technology, you can just go right in there and see it. You can Google Earth almost anywhere and see it. And so they'll see all of this by technology. Maybe TV cameras will be there and it'll all be having a party. They're dead. Ding dong, the witch is dead. They'll have a party. The two witnesses are finally dead. Let's party. And by the way, that's what lost people do, aren't it? Don't they? They jeer and sneer and party. And don't have a clue what they're doing. I was in that crowd for a long time. And you just party hardy and wait for the next weekend so you can do it again. And your life has no meaning, no purpose. You're just existing. And I'm telling you, as these prophets preach, there's coming a payday someday. Payday someday. So you better get right with the Lord. I'm telling you, you better get right with Him. Because there's coming a payday someday. And so Jerusalem, he says in verse 8, is going to be polluted in the world like Solomon was and rebellious and proud like Egypt was. Now watch what happens to these two witnesses. Watch in verse number 11. Oh, I like this part. Can you imagine the degradation that was happening with these two men laying in the street for three and a half days and everybody would come over and laugh at them and party and drink one over them and just having a big old time. They're dead now. Man, we got our leader. We got the Antichrist. He's leading us. Now watch what happens as the two witnesses are resurrected. Now, after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. (laughs) Who's that remind you of? Jesus. Jesus. And they stood on their feet and great Fear fell on all those that saw them. And then they heard a voice from heaven saying, Come on up here. Come on up. That's what he's going to tell you, Grandma. That's what he's going to tell your aunt. You know. That's what he told my brother in February. Mike, come on up here. Come on up here. I got a place reserved for you. Come on up. And that's what he told his two guys, his witnesses. Y'all come on up here. And watch this. And they ascended 
to heaven in a cloud like Jesus and like us during the rapture. And their enemies saw them. What are what people left behind is going to think when they see us go up? I don't know how all that's going to play out. But it's going to be, I'm glad I'm the one going up. Amen. In the same hour, there were a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. A tenth, which was an earthquake of about 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid, I guess so, were afraid. And they gave glory to God of heaven. Oh, praise the Lord. Oh, we believe in you. We believe in you. Mm -mm, mm -mm. No, you don't. No, you don't. Now watch. These two witnesses, this is a vivid picture. Like Jesus came out of that tomb after three days. He said after three and a half days, these two men came alive. Can you imagine what happened? I think it happened like this. Joe, I saw his arm move. His arm was moving. Hey, hey, look over here. His feet's moving. He's moving. They're moving. Get back. They're moving. And all of a sudden, the Bible says the life of God came in those two witnesses, and they just kind of stood up. How y'all doing now? How y'all doing now? And I think they dropped the Bud Light. And I think they just stood there. And the Bible says they were frozen with fear because God showed up. Don't you be despaired, ma'am. Don't you be despaired, Dad, don't you be despaired when tragedy and storms hit your house. I'm telling you, if you're alive in Christ, if you're in the Lord Jesus Christ, your day's coming. You're going to be raised up. And by the way, the loved ones that you have are going to be raised up as well. You've got to believe that because it's true. It's true. I believe this, these two men, God put life back into them and raised them up. He had them there for a purpose. The purpose was finished. And he said, come on up, boys. Come on up and join me in heaven. And they went up. It was like the midnight cry, wasn't it? It was like the midnight cry. Son, go get your children. Boys, y'all, come on up. Let me give you the last thing, the rejoicing in heaven. Look in verse 14. The second woe is past, and behold, the third. Remember the three woes we talked about? Two of them's gone. Here's the third one. Now watch what happens here in verses 15 through uh, 19. Rejoicing in heaven. You think there's going to be rejoicing in heaven? Oh, yeah, watch this. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voices, 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 choirs, choirs, loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and His Christ. Now, John's seeing that the last days here, after the white, great white throne judgment, everything in heaven, he's seeing the celebration of heaven now. And by the way, it's happened also in Revelation 16.5 and Revelation 19.5. It gives the same thing of the rejoicing in heaven, celebration in heaven. Watch what he says. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel said, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever. The hallelujah chorus broke out. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> the, the angels kind of came in there, Bradley. Hallelujah, hallelujah. <laughs> I'm telling you, Jason, I'm looking forward to that. When we're going to have the hallelujah chorus forever and ever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He shall reign forever and ever. He's on the throne, by the way. He's never left it. He came to earth in the form of a man, yes. 
But God's always been on the throne. And He's calling His people to Him. And the hallelujah chorus breaks out in heaven. In verse 16, And the 24 elders, remember they got their thrones. They left their throne and kneeled before His throne. Watch verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their, on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. Now these are the dignitaries. These are the elders. And watch what they did. Watch this. This is why I try to help you guys to worship, man. you got to worship Him. Watch this, verse 17. You, we, give, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come. You ever heard that song? It's called the Revelation song. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who comes. It's an awesome, awesome song. I love that song. Because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the true, and the time of the dead, that they shall be judged. We talked about that. That's what the two witnesses were doing, judging. And that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. That's us. That's the two prophets. All the prophets and the saints going to be rewarded. They're going to be rewarded. And those who fear your name, that's Christians. Those who fear your name, small and great, and shall destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. And there was lightnings and thunderings and earthquakes and great hail. Now the last part of verse 18 talks about the judgment of God. Uh, the, I'm telling you, he's going to judge all of those left on the earth. He's going to judge those now before we raptured out. He's going to judge. We're going to stand before Christ one day in the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And we're going to give account of our works, not our salvation. We're already saved. We're caught up in the cloud into heaven. But those left behind are going to be judged. And at the end, the great white throne judgment. We'll get to that in Revelation chapter 19. When we get to the great white throne judgment, all the lost are going to be judged. But all of those who are saved are going to be with the Lord and singing in this great choir the Hallelujah Chorus. And we're going to be singing the Revelation song. And we're going to be praising God with the 24 elders and all the prophets and all the saints are going to be together again in heaven. It's awesome, isn't it? It is really I'm glad John gives us a sneak preview of that part. Because the coming attractions in verse 12, 13, and 14, 15, and 16 are terrible. Terrible. What's going to happen to those left behind? The Ark of the Covenant, they're seen as symbolic of God. In the Old Testament, when they had the Ark of the Covenant. But now, you know, we're not going to just see the Ark of the Covenant when we get to heaven. We're going to see Jesus. Amen? Because the Ark of the Covenant represented God. And we're going to see Jesus. Now, here's the question as I close. Are you going? Now, think about this. It's not just a church sermon question. Are you going? Have you made your reservations in Christ? And by the way, that is the only way you're going. There's no other way except through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. So here's my question to you, ma'am, sir, young person. Have you accepted Christ as your personal Savior? Now, let's just say Jesus comes back for the church, the rapture, today. You're going to be left behind. You're going to be in that crowd. 
You need to think about this. If you've never accepted Christ into your heart as your personal Savior, you need to do that today. So how do I do that, Pastor? We ask you to come forward. Myself and other pastors are here to help you. You just need to say, hey, I'm ready to be saved. That's all you need to do. We're not going to embarrass you. We're just going to tell you how to be saved. We're going to take you back. They're going to get, some, get your name, that sort of stuff. We're going to tell you how to be saved. We're going to share with you the plan of salvation. You say, well, I've been saved, but I'm not living it. I'm just kind of gotten away from God. Well, maybe you want to come and let us help you know how you can recommit your life to Christ and pray with you. Or maybe you're looking for a church family. You don't have a church home. You're just out there visiting around, visiting, visiting, visiting. You haven't planted yourself anywhere. How are you going to really get involved? How are you going to really be used of God with your gifts and talents if you're not planted in a church? The local church. So I ask you to come and join Lindsay Lane if this is the church God leads you to. So that's why we have an invitation. And by the way, it's not a time to leave to beat the parking. Can I get a witness? It's not a time to leave. It's a time to be praying. Because people's lives are in the balance. So let's pray. Father... Would you hear our prayer, O oh Lord? Father, we're desperate for you. Men, women, boys, and girls need Jesus. We saw two young little girls baptized this morning who gave their life to Christ. And it's not about a child thing. I, Bo was telling me he baptized a 94-year-old woman. 94 years old, almost missed heaven. But she got her life right with Jesus, and Bo baptized her. <coughs> so it doesn't matter if you're a senior adult. Are you a young child? You need Jesus. I'm going to ask you to come today and do business with God. Let him have your heart. Let him have your home. Let him have your marriage. Let him have your life. Father, would you do what no man can do? Change people's heart. Give them life. Life everlasting. I pray that, Lord, that you would have your anointing power. And you would draw people to you now. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with us?